Before we begin this episode, just a trigger warning. Help is always available. And if you need to speak with someone today, call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 44. You've reached the Entertainment Hotline, a chatter podcast. Listen as celebs dial in to chat with Anita Annabelle. Chatter.com.au and Media Week's Head of Entertainment. Dial 1 for movie stars. Dial 2 for streaming stars. Dial 3 for TV stars. Dial 4 for music stars. Or press 0 to speak with the star of the show herself, Anita. Hey, it's Nick McKenzie from Stan's original documentary series Revealed with our latest doco, Travis. Hello and welcome back to the Entertainment Hotline. I am your host, Anita Annabelle. On today's episode, I spoke with 14-time Walkley Award-winning investigative journalist Nick McKenzie, who, following his 60-minute report on sex trafficking in 2022, is back with Trafficked, streaming now on Stan. Nick spoke about the prolific nature of sex trafficking, what risks he takes as a journalist to report on it, and how he deals with such heavy content to live a normal life. You can watch the original documentary, Trafficked, streaming now on Stan. Here's Nick. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm honestly so thrilled to be chatting with you. No, my pleasure. Thanks for your time. This Stan documentary, it's harrowing. And I I watched the 60 Minutes interview that you did. So harrowing. I can't believe that you had this land on your desk. Before we speak about that, I'd love to chat to you about your career because you're an award winning. You've won every award that you could possibly have. Um, And you've been a journalist for over two decades. You don't look old enough. I'm clinging on to my my um boy uh, boyish looks, but no, yeah, I certainly feel I feel old and tired yeah. <laughs> and exhausted. Um, that's for sure. I can imagine. I can imagine. But how did this all start for you? I think I've just been someone who is really well suited to investigative journalism. So I'm quite an obsessive um, person, and I, 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 I little things that I think actors in the end fairly big drivers so I don't like bullies I don't like the abuse of power uh I get a real kick out of helping people stand up to power I um I love the adventure of the job yeah and I love the idealism of the job I I love the idea that journalism can make the world a better place even in small ways and so all the tough stuff you do as a reporter is hopefully worth it because occasionally you get that little bit of a, a breakthrough yeah, of course. I mean, and this story that you're telling is is so powerful and scary, yet is so important. And at school, was this something that you always, you were like, yeah, I want to be a journalist, this is exactly what I want to do? Or what was it like at school and then transitioning into your career? I think at school I knew what I didn't want to do, which was to you know, sit behind a desk and be a a banker or be stuck in an office. Uh, so the, the lure of and the I had a pretty romanticized view of journalism, which I actually don't think is is in any way correct. Journalism is a hard slog, yeah, and it's very, very difficult. But I think, like lots of young people, I, I love the idea of being a foreign correspondent or a war correspondent, and having this this role sort of in the thick of it, seeing amazing things and meeting interesting people. My career has been much more interesting than I would have ever thought, but it's certainly not been I wouldn't call it fun, <laughs> no. Not at all. I mean, it's very rewarding. 
though, I would say. Yeah, it can be ex- extremely rewarding, which is why you ca- I keep doing it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, it's uh, yeah. It, it, when you see change, and when you when you see laws put in place, or a parliamentary committee, or a royal commission that's caused because of what you've done, uh, or you see organised crime or corruption being exposed, or, or but more than anything, when you see someone who has no power, I often think of people say, "What's your favourite story?" I once did a story about these disabled, profoundly disabled women who were abused in a disability home, and to to put a really disabled woman uh, who had no previously, you know, from the outside of society, had very little power or agency to put her on four corners on national television to tell her story about being abused and to say to Australia, "Hey, I'm a somebody, and I've got the same rights as you, and I've got every." Every right to exercise my human rights, I'm going to do it. I'm going to hold the, the system and, and my rapists to account uh, on national television. And she did that with such power. When that's you get a real kick as a journalist out of out of helping someone or providing a platform for someone to do that. Yeah, of course. I mean, I work in a very different field of journalism to you. I would actually call my journalism a lot more fun, but sometimes it's one of those things where you're like what am I doing with the world? How can I make this world a better place by what I'm doing? And I guess it's telling people's stories like yours. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the, through the lens of what you're doing as an investigative journalist. And I think it, it often scares me a little bit to speak to journalists like you because you have gone down such a very different path to, I guess, the way that I have. Yeah, but it's so important that we have the debate about the media as well and, and what we're doing well and what we're doing poorly because, you know, the media can be a great force for change and good, but the media can be a pretty average place as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, casting a light on, on how the media uses its power and uses its influence is absolutely critical. Yeah, of course. So let's talk about the documentary You first reported on human trafficking. It's Australia's largest trafficking operations on 60 Minutes. And now it's turned into the documentary Revealed Trafficked. How on earth did this story land across your desk? Because I know in the 60 Minutes doc you said that you got a tip-off, like one tip-off. How did this happen? Well, the the one tip-off was part of uh, a lot more tip-offs, but ultimately the whole story began for me uh, over 10 years ago when I got another tip-off about a, about a death of a young a young guy. He's about 23 years old. He was a guy called Abraham Papo, and he was just a, a guy living in suburban, suburban Melbourne. He fell in love with a South Korean student. She would you know, do her homework on the floor of his family, family home. She was also a sex worker, and he came to learn that she was trafficked or being abused or held against their will by a syndicate, the same syndicate we ended up looking at in this in this documentary. And he tried to save her and was bashed to death outside a brothel. Oh, my gosh. Uh, that was written off as a burglary gone wrong and no one was ever charged over the what looked like to me potentially a murder. So I investigated that uh, more than 10 years ago. It led to there being murder charges. The murder charges weren't successful in court, but what unfolded was this massive story about a trafficking syndicate which is the same syndicate with the same players that we're looking at today so it's a it's a a murder story that became a human trafficking story which ultimately became a story about why is trafficking still happening in australia how much is going on and why are we doing more to stop it you investigated 
this specific for 12 months, this, but now you're saying that it's been over 10 years. How has this evolved? Like how have you gone from the murder to now the, the trafficking? Is this an everyday thing? Is this just getting tip-off? Is this investigating for the last decade? It's a really good question and ultimately it, it sounds odd because Australia is a big place in many ways, but also Australia is a small place. So when you get to have a sense of organised crime and who's who in the zoo in certain jurisdictions like Melbourne, uh, there are various crews of Chinese organised crime uh, that work with um, South Korean organised crime that control parts of our underground sex industry. And as it happens, those some of those same players have been massive players in the casino junket business at Crown Casino and Star Casino involved in large-scale money laundering. Uh, so it's this sort of milieu of organised crime and the same players keep popping up again and again and again. It's what they do. It's what their business is. Yeah. And so uh, having started to look at them over 10 years ago, I've seen the same entities develop, get bigger, grow their businesses, branch off into places like from a brothel to working at, at Crown Casino as a as a high-wealth uh, money mover, a, a money um, junket sort of high-roller tour operator. Uh, and uh, they're resilient. They, they don't go out of business and, and – Part of the story of, of these characters and these businesses, it's this underbelly of Australian life where people are being exploited and there's organised crime occurring. And the other part of it is what are our authorities doing? What are our governments doing? And are they doing enough to, to stop it? And at the heart of all this stuff, you know, I keep telling myself it's about people. It's about the women. Now, I've got no problem if you want to work as a sex worker. You should have absolute agency and working rights. But if you have those rights exploited, uh, in some cases, we, we understand women you know, are paid nothing, they're terror, terrorised, they're terrified. We need to have a society that, that stops that, uh, and unfortunately we don't. But when you're doing these investigations with these women, I mean, I couldn't believe that they have no control over their lives. And then for, the, for traffic, we're talking about them being brainwashed. What does that even mean? Like what, when we say that they're being brainwashed and they have no other option, how are they being brainwashed? I mean, two things pop into my mind immediately when you say that. We interviewed a trafficking victim from South Korea. She's, she came to Melbourne. She was part of the syndicate operation. Uh, so she was lured by the promise of, of money. She was involved in the dancing industry in South Korea, sort of a, a, a prostitution to legal in South Korea. But and some some people and there's an instinct I think that people have which you have to be so careful of. Oh well, they say she knew what she was getting herself into. But really, what happened? She ended up getting a debt of about eighty thousand dollars, which then grew and grew and grew. And that was for her airfares and her visa uh, and various things that she needed her accommodation. She owed the syndicate that money, and they said you're going to make a fortune, but first you've got to pay off your debt of eighty grand. And suddenly, it's one hundred and twenty grand, and then it's one hundred and sixty grand. So she ends up working for nothing seven days a week. Uh, up to 24 hours, I mean, sometimes without sleep, uh, enduring the most horrific conditions. Uh, and suddenly she's trapped. She feels like she can't complain to the police. She's here on a, a dodgy visa. She feels like she owes the syndicate money. And that there's the threat that the syndicate will do something to her family back in South Korea if she speaks up. Uh, so brainwashing, it's, it's a process by which she's lured to think it's a good idea to come to Australia. And then through fear, she's unable to, to take the steps she wants to take to, to rid herself of her situation until she finally breaks free and goes to the federal police. 
one of the federal police investigators, a really a remarkable woman, uh, Danielle Woodward, who actually used to be a, an Olympic kayaker, so a very determined elite athlete and a very fine detective, wow. described meeting a North Korean woman who was sort of smuggled out of North Korea, find, found her way to Australia as part of the syndicate. And, she, and what was shocking to Danielle was this these terrible conditions this woman was working in, underpaid, seven days a week. She'd be fine if she if she didn't make more money. Um, she thought that was okay because it was better than her conditions in North Korea. And you know, for, for, for the AFP, it was like, hang on a second, how can any human being think this was an okay workplace condition environment? But if you've, if you've grown up in North Korea, then you've got a different perspective. Uh, and so it was, a, it was a bit of a wake-up call for the AFP to say, this is why some women end up in, in these sort of terrible conditions in Australia. How on earth do they get out then? So she was in this whole situation where she cannot get out. It's all about money for her, but she's not making any money. But then she goes to the federal police. How does that happen? Where, where does that moment that she goes, this is not right, I need to to go and report this? When we interviewed the, the woman, uh, female victim in South Korea, you know, one one thing that really struck our team was her her strength and her uh, her bravery and even her decision to speak up and out about her very personal and horrific experience all these years later um, spoke about a woman with guts uh, and you know, th- this is a woman who said, well, I'm going to risk my own life and go and talk to the cops and see what happens and flee the syndicate, which is what she did. I and mean, she, she got out, but you know, think how, how, how terrifying it would have been in those first few days of fleeing, not knowing what was going to happen. There's a lot of, of distrust of the police as well. So in, in some of the countries where these women come from, the police are corrupt. So there's a risk they take, are the Australian police going to be the same? Will I be thrown back to the syndicate? Uh, but ultimately, I think it says a lot about human you know, the human strength in, in people. When the situation gets really bad, people will, will take an extreme measure. They'll break free and they'll do what they, they need to do to get their liberty back. And this is what happened in, in this case. Is she then put into protective custody? They have a system in Australia where victims of trafficking get six months or thereabouts of accommodation, a stipend to live, uh, some support from the Red Cross and other social services. But it's, it's a difficult system. The victims actually, some victims complain about that to say, well, we, we only get that support if we testify in court. Now, we may want to break free but not testify because testifying is terrifying and traumatic and if we testify who knows what's going to happen to our families overseas and there's a real question of whether they're denied that six month support that package of support if they if they decide not to testify so there's there's a, a, a there's a very steps you've got to go through to become a victim uh, and to meet those victim requirements. Now, the AFP, that said, are really, are really onto the ball, I think, in, in my view, about helping victims. And they say to victims, we understand you probably won't want to testify or you may not want to testify and we'll still support you and we'll still do what we can to, to take on the, the syndicate. The, the very same syndicate we're investigating, midway through our investigation, the AFP raided one of their hubs because two Japanese women made allegations of trafficking. Uh, that didn't eventuate into a prosecution. This is just last year. But the women were, were taken, were, were allowed to leave the country to remove themselves from the syndicate and the police tried to find evidence by raiding a, a brothel. Uh, so there was still action, action taken. Oh, that's good. 
But then what are the risks of them? So they've now left the syndicate. They're now going into um, under police protection, I guess we could say, to maybe then testify. They have to go through all these steps to become a victim, which I just feel like aren't they a victim anyway? Shouldn't it just be an easy process? But then what are the risks for them? Well, the risks are the syndicate knows who they are. Think about when you, if you are in South Korea and you've given the syndicate your passport, they know where you live. You've agreed to the syndicate to arrange you to get a dodgy visa, uh, so you're part of a corrupted migration process. So that's a criminal offence in and of itself. So the syndicate can say, A, we know where you live, we'll come and get your family or we'll threaten you. And, and maybe they won't, but the mere threat of that looms over you. They also say, you cross us, we're going to beat you out of Australia. I mean, the whole reason women come to Australia is to make money and have a better life, a very reasonable um, demands that, that any, any person would want. And they can take that away from them by saying, well, your visa's dodgy, we helped you get it, but we're going to report you to immigration and you'll be deported. And sometimes that's what happens. So there's all these levers that can be placed over the women. Some of the, the statements that we've got from women who were captured or held by the syndicate in Melbourne, they were kept in apartments in South Bank and in the city. They would live five or six women in, in the same apartment and there'd be a, st- a minder or a standover man that was a Chinese term they called them, uh, like it's called Lao Dao, big boss, uh, basically a triad enforcer. And this guy would be there to drive them to the brothel, to drive them from the brothel to get their food, but but to be basically their their captor. And there was a fear: what would he do to them? Would he would he sexually assault them? Would he harm them physically? And he did both uh, if they stepped out of line. Uh, so that they're the sort of levels uh, levers of fear that are placed over some of these women. It's absolutely staggering to me that there are women in apartments around Sydney, around Melbourne, around the cities, and you're just like walking past these apartments. You have no idea what's going on inside them. I mean, the AFP has a, I think it's a, it sounds sometimes a little cliched, but like look a little deeper um, when it comes to the sex industry. Uh, but I think the real scandal is the numbers of exploited Asian sex workers in Australia is massive. There are thousands of women who aren't getting proper paying conditions. And again, I've got no problem. Women should have the right to work in the sex industry. Absolutely, absolutely. But they should have their rights protected. They should get paid properly, have proper working conditions, and the bosses, those who, who don't provide those, should be – they're the criminals. They're the ones who should be, should be gone after, uh, but not enough of going after these sorts of people is happening. But it's also that the women should have a choice. And it sounds like what sex trafficking is and what these sex workers are doing is that these crime bosses are not giving them any sort of agency, any sort of choice over what they can do. And that is the, that's so, 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 so scary. That's exactly right. I think one real problem when it comes to discussing trafficking is people think of they want to see a woman in, in chains and that's not what trafficking yeah. looks like. They want to see a woman whose passport's been taken away and put in a safe. That's not what trafficking looks like anymore because the syndicates no longer take passports. They know the cops are looking for that. And they want to see a woman not often, and this is, can be a real white male perspective, it's, it's like if a woman decides to work in the sex industry, then somehow the idea that they might be coerced or trafficked, well, that's their problem because they, they 
decided to work in the sex industry. So there's, there's a, a, a very difficult perception thing that happens in some parts of society where we ultimately say the sex industry should be placed in the corner, in a dark corner, and let's not ask too many questions about it. Because at the end of the day, trafficking can be on a whole range of levels, but also so can be the basic denial of workplace rights. And if you're being made to work seven days a week uh, and service a huge amount of male clients where you've agreed to work four days a week and have more agency as to who you pick, but you're being forced to endure these worst conditions, that's a shocking thing. It may not be trafficking under the law, uh, but it certainly will be a breach of, of your workplace rights. Debt bondage is very, very common, perhaps the most common form of, of trafficking, and that's simply where you've you've got this massive debt. And you're not getting paid. You're, you're basically having sex for free with men to pay off that debt. That is illegal under our laws, and it should be illegal because think about it. It's a form of slavery. Uh, if you're stuck in, a, stuck in a room having sex with men and not actually pocketing that money, but the syndicate's taking that money from you, to pay off that debt, that's a, that's a really shocking scenario to be to be trapped in, and that's why that's it carries significant jail terms under Australian law, but it's it's not enforced enough. What I found really interesting, um, and also once again mind blowing, is that organised crime will continue to do this as long as there is a profit to be made, and hundreds of millions of dollars is being sent internationally. Like it just. How does this happen? Because you said before that the debts rise. So they rise from you've got an 80 grand debt, you've got a 120 grand debt, you've got 180 grand debt. How on earth does that rise or how do they they then use that money and take it away? Um, the, the, I mean, the scale of it, I think, is what you're getting at. The scale of it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. I am getting at that. Sorry, yeah. it's just it's mind blowing to me. I just it's not it's completely beyond my comprehension. Yeah, it's um, I mean, ultimately, I think we've just got to understand that there is a huge demand for Asian sex workers in Australia. Uh, and does that surprise us? If you walk through the CBD in Sydney or in Melbourne, now I'm not saying every Asian massage joint is a, a legal brothel or a dodgy brothel, but a lot of them are. They look like it. Uh, and uh, what does that tell us? It tells us there's a huge demand for this sort of um, people want to pay for South Koreans and Chinese women, uh, Australian men and, and uh, Asian men here want to pay for that service. Uh, and so if the, if the market is so big, there's always been an organised crime element that seeks to exploit that market and, and profit from it. Uh, and the real scandal is not that it's it's happening it's what we're doing about it or what we're not doing about it. But it, this exactly. is across, there's a continuum here. It's across a whole range of worker types. So think of any industry where, you know, if you're a, a middle-class person, you've got a good university education, it's a place where you, you won't want to end up working. On a fruit farm, in a factory, in a massage parlour, uh, these are the jobs, you know, 7-Eleven, these are the jobs we give our migrant workforces and these are the jobs where people tend to be more exploited and don't know how to assert their work rights. And it's mm. a scandal. We have a second-class second, second class citizen in Australia which basically services the needs of, of other parts of our economy and sometimes the needs of, you know, the, the personal needs of, of men who don't give two shits about when they walk into a massage parlour about the, the rights and working conditions of the woman working there. And more needs to be done about it. 
But those who work in the sex industry, there's a term I've, I didn't actually know before I did this, this doco, but I always spoke to some sex work, worker advocates, really passionate women. They talk about whorephobia and they say that you know, there's such a taboo about the sex industry. Uh, there's a sense uh, in some quarters that sex workers don't, shouldn't deserve rights, shouldn't deserve to be protected and, and should be seen as, as some, somehow less of a, than other workers. And that informs, I think, some of the approach in parts of our society. The thing that is also quite shocking to me is the fact that these organised crime bosses get two years jail, then deported, and then can come back. It's, I mean, the, the slap on the wrist uh, sentences are really, really troubling. Um, Why is that? But two years? Are you kidding? Well, one, one of the major issues is, so with Major Kim, this boss, you know, the police say at any one time she had 100 women that they say were being coerced, trafficked, intimidated on her books, 100 women at any one time. Think about the amount of suffering there. But they could only end up prosecuting her for lesser offences related to human trafficking, but they were offences to do with uh, basically running uh, illegal sex operations and money laundering. And so she got her four or five years jail, which when you think about the amount of money she made, which is is many millions of dollars, and think about the misery she, she sowed, which is untold, that's a slap on the wrist. Uh, but it was very hard for the AFP to find victims willing to go to court and testify because of the trauma of doing so. Who would want to stand up and say, this is my name, I've worked as a sex worker for five years, and I'm going to tell you in excruciating detail what happened to me, and I'm going to be subject myself to a defence barrister working for the crime boss who is going to rip me to shreds and call me a liar and say that because I was a sex worker, uh, I shouldn't be trusted. Who's, who's going to want to endure that? So that, that's why it's hard to get victims, plus the fear of their families being come after. And that's why our courts sometimes struggle to, to see the cases for what they or how they should be, should be seen. I mean, there's a, another major problem where there has been a tendency in the past where the police in some jurisdictions will simply charge the sex workers themselves with illegal prostitution offences. Uh, they'll be... They were charged themselves. That's right. I mean, the police have said we were... Uh, it took us a while to understand that some of these sex workers should be viewed as victims, not as criminals. Uh, and that's been a big a mindset for some state police forces. Uh, so, you, you, But you ended up having sex workers before the courts rather than the bosses making all the money, and that's, a, that's obviously a problem as well. And is there a lot of these syndicates, or do you think it's just like this one? I mean, there's got to be, right? They've, they've got to be various streams of this happening because it's almost like as though one does it and then everyone's like, oh, this is so easy to do it in Australia. Let's come here. There is, um, I mean, I know there's many syndicates. There's dozens of of these sex syndicates uh, working often in cooperation with each other around the country. And, I mean, the way it seems to work is that they, laws of demand and supply, they need to supply women so they work together to supply women from Macau, Hong Kong, Thailand, uh, South Korea, North Korea, etc. They come to Australia and then there's this network where they want to move the women through different sex outlets, brothels licensed and unlicensed, motels, Airbnb, and they want to have this fresh young girl from Asia to advertise. So a woman will never be there for a long time. So she's cycled through sometimes the whole country. She'll move from a, a motel in rural New South Wales to a motel in rural Queensland. She'll jump on a flight, end up in Perth, working in a rural town in Perth, uh, not getting paid what she should be getting paid. 
not getting the rights you should be getting and really living a pretty miserable existence. Uh, and that's happening. And there's dozens of syndicates and, and hundreds, if not thousands, of women involved in that right today, right now. How will this ever end? Well, that is a massive question for our society because ultimately police can do some of this. Um, uh, yeah, the Red Cross has a trafficking service. They can do some of it. But ultimately it's about how people, how we want to treat our, our migrant workers, whether they're sex workers or other, other sorts of workers, and what we want to do to ensure that they get appropriate rights. Uh, and it's about really empowering our migrant worker workforce to ensure that this doesn't happen, that they, there are avenues by which they can exercise their rights. If they're trafficked, they can go to the police and get an outcome. If they're not trafficked, but if they're getting underpaid or exploited in some other way, they can go to a government agency and get an outcome. Uh, and at the moment, that's not happening. At the moment, Australia is happy to have this, this second class of citizen, this migrant worker who, who has less rights, uh, who lives in fear of being deported, uh, and uh, it's a massive societal change uh, and everybody has a responsibility from the regulators and the agencies to the politicians to us as people who uh, participate in society, to the men who decide to go to these sex shops to pay for the services, uh, to the businesses who hire fruit pickers and don't ask enough questions about the labour hire companies giving, giving them these migrant workers. Uh, and uh, really it boils down to money. Um, this is all about making money and, and making money off people's misery. Uh, and uh, it's a constant fight and, and it's something at the very least we, we must be aware of. There are so many loopholes and I, I completely understand what you're saying, you know, as a society we absolutely, we can, we can help curb this. But I guess the loopholes, I guess, in the migration system that is in, in immigration, like what is being done to stop it? I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of visa holders or visa applicants in Australia that are waiting for their visas. I mean, there's huge visa queues because of backlogging and processing problems. The Minister for Home Affairs, Claire O'Neill, has, as a result of a, a range of things, sought to to change and improve the system. Uh Within that system are, are many mi migrant workers who are, are here. They've been brought here to be basically exploited, be it in the sex industry or in other industries. And it's a scandal. The government and previous governments have allowed it to occur. This government's taking action. We have years and years of governments talking about boat people uh, coming coming mm -hmm. here. There's a lot, a lot of resource and attention placed on stopping the boats. There was yeah. minimal resource and attention placed on stopping crime syndicates bringing exploited people here to, to live lives of misery uh, and to make criminals lots of money. And that's, I mean, that's now been acknowledged. Is it is it changing or not Not yet? Are they getting in via false documentation? So in, in terms of change of name, change of identity, is that how it's happening? Oh, there's there's a whole range of ways it can happen. There are organised crime syndicates who get false passports or, I mean, they call them false real passports where they actually they they have a fake identity but the passport is not, it's, it's a real passport, if that makes sense. So they have the truth and everything, yeah, Precisely, totally. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the most common thing is they just look at our visa system and they say, right, wh where is the visa stream? Is it a skilled visa? Is it a student visa? Is it a uh, short-stay working visa? Where is the visa stream that we can exploit most easily? So the massive one previously has been these overseas student colleges. 
So these colleges are set up sometimes simply to harvest migrant workers. The colleges get paid kickbacks. They'll pretend the workers are going to school and getting a certificate in hairdressing or whatever it might be. But it's a big scam. Everyone's getting a kickback. Uh, So it looks like the visa holder is complying, but in fact they're working in a a legal brothel getting exploited. Uh, And there's thousands of people who've been on those visas. How on earth do you compartmentalise and live an everyday life? Uh, Listen, it does wear you down because I think the worst thing is you see so much suffering and so much bad stuff happening that just people get away with the injustice. Uh, Because there is so much inequity in our society and there is uh, lots of people struggling all the time. Um, It's journalism's had to cast a light on on this and and we do that, but it does does get you down. And when you see uh, the abject conditions in some some brothels and understand that there are women being exploited and there's very little that you can do to, to change that and there seems to be a lot of disinterest amongst their agencies in, in fighting it. it, it it's, uh, it's, it's depressing but at the same time I think I just say to myself I use that to fire myself up. Like I want to I stay passionate about my job. I want to keep caring about what I do and caring about the people at the centre of it and so I, I just imagine w- walking a day in their shoes and then you know, rather than being overwhelmed by um, the tide of human misery that, that surrounds us, we, you know, you're, you're pushed along by it. You say, let's let's try to tell these stories and, and try to make the world a, a bit of a better place if you can. So, yeah, it's and, – and, you yeah, I mean, you also just try to separate your work from your life as best you can, you, you know, friends, family, hobbies, et cetera. You remember that, that um, you, you've got to leave sometimes your work at, at work uh, – uh, but that, that's hard in my job because it's an all-encompassing job. Um, it's, it's uh, and yet you, you know you, sometimes you end up dreaming about, about your stories or whatever, and and um, uh, and that's that's just part of it. I mean, a lot of people dream about work, but I don't know if we're dreaming about what you're dreaming about, and that's that's like your subconscious keeping it in there, isn't it? Like you you can't really escape it, and it's such such heavy heavy content. What are the risks for you telling these stories? I mean, there, I used to be really blase about the risks uh, because um, I was, yeah, just I think young and, and uh, didn't really uh, would run around town meeting bikies and corrupt cops and not think too much about it. But as I've got older, I, I, I'm conscious that there that it is a dangerous job at times, and there are pretty unpleasant people. Um, I mean, we don't live in China, we don't live in Russia, so it's as a journalist, you can practice your trade. Uh, much more easily uh, here. Uh, the, the biggest danger has often been a defamation suit rather than um, an act of physical violence. But you know, I get regularly threatened by by people I write about, uh, and I've had to move out of my house when I when the police have advised me to do so to protect my safety and th- those sorts of things. So it, it is, you know, it, you can only poke the bear so many times without the bear um, coming coming out. Uh, coming to take a, a whack at you and that's just part of the job so you, you i'm just mindful of taking safety precautions and i mean it sounds a bit funny but when you when you do take on these people you try to do so as best you can in a respectful you know in a way where the organized crime figure at the end of it or the corrupt politician or whatever feels the very least you've given them a fair hearing i mean they know when they're caught they know when they're busted and they know journalists have a job to do uh, so as, as long as they're given some forewarning that you're going to be putting out these facts, they're giving a, a right of reply. You know, there's a way you can 
you can mitigate some of the blowback, but ultimately you can't do that fully, and, and so you just have to be, have to take take care. And is this story something that you'll continue to? You've got the documentary, you've done the sixty minutes report. Is this something that you'll end up closing the door on, or closing the book, and moving on to something else, or is this something that you think you're going to be ongoing forever for the next ten years? Uh, listen, I'm, I'm to be honest, I'm ready to. to move on from it because it's been a long difficult journey and it's it's hard it's hard part of the reason it's very hard is it's some people don't care about this issue they don't care that there's trafficked women they don't care that there's asian women who are being exploited uh or or other migrant workers being exploited they just want to get along with their lives and i understand that i'm not saying people i'm not telling people what to think um but it gets you down when you do a lot of work and it, it sort of just comes and goes uh with 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 minimal um, <laughs> impact, that's I mean that's the that's the Achilles heel of journalism, though, isn't it? So, mm-hmm. uh, but there's there's lots of um, inequity and uh, impropriety and, and abuse of power out there. So there's I'm not going to be going out of business, and, and I look forward to not look forward. But there's lots of other things I'm, I'm tackling at the moment as well. So I think we've 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 really cast the light on human trafficking in Australia. We've put it uh, on the map. There has been promises of political response. There has been inquiries launched. That that's all terrific stuff. Uh, which which we're which the team is very proud of, and um, uh, but I'm 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 going to probably give the human trafficking area a break for the, for the uh, <laughs> short term at least. It sounds like you just you're saying it so. Oh yeah, I'm just going to give it a break, and it's I can understand that this has taken a huge mental toll, even though you know you do say that it is part of your job. But I hope that the next something that you're investigating kind of releases that a little bit more for you. Yeah, it's not the. Uh, I picked the wrong sort of journalism. I don't. I don't get the. the uh, I was watching a TV clip this morning about a, a Channel Nine reporter doing a story about the show and show bags and sick kids coming from the, oh. the children's hospital and having the joy of, uh, of opening those show bags. I thought, geez, I wouldn't mind doing a story, a heartwarming story every now and then. But um, uh, no, I, I, I love my job, and ultimately, yeah, it's it's tough at times, sure, but it's not as tough as. As being trafficked to you know to Australia, it's not as not as tough as m- most of the um, suffering that, that we confront in others. So it's a privilege to tell other people's stories and to glimpse into into their lives, and um, and so that's you know there's a real joy in doing that um, as hard as it can be. So that's that's what propels you to the next story. I just feel like what you're doing is is changing lives and and really shining a light. So I think it's very commendable, and we absolutely need journalists like you. So don't stop what you're doing. Keep doing it. Keep going, doing your investigative work because, you know, there is a place for all different types of journalism. And, you know, maybe one day, maybe one day in a, you know, 20 years' time you might be doing the happy news about show bags at the Easter show. Watch this space. <laughs> Watch this space. Thank you so much for chatting to me today. This has been so enlightening, honestly. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for calling the Entertainment Hotline with Anita Annabelle. You can find us on Instagram at the Entertainment underscore Hotline Pod or visit us at chatter.com.au. The Entertainment Hotline with Anita Annabelle is a proud Chatter podcast.